This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Second Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3. Continuation of where we left off this morning. Paul writing to Timothy said, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away. We've been looking today at Paul's warnings given to Timothy about the signs of the last days. Most Christians believe that we are in the last days, the period that Paul is talking about here in 2 Timothy. And as we look at the world around us, we are left in absolutely no doubt that his prophetic analysis of what things would be like in our generation are absolutely true. When Paul speaks of perilous times here, we said this morning that the word perilous, the word for perilous, it means hard to bear, difficult, dangerous, stressful. The only other time that that word that means perilous is in the New Testament is whenever uh, Jesus was confronted by those two demoniacs uh, from Gadara, and it said they were exceedingly fierce, And that also fits in to the picture that Paul's expressing. And so Paul is not speaking here about the seven-year tribulation period that's divided into two, the great tribulation, sorry, the tribulation and the great tribulation. But all of these things that he's talking about will lead up to that. And then during that seven-year period, before Christ physically returns to this earth, then they will have full, unrestrained unopposed, limitless opportunity to fully express themselves. So these signs are a precursor, a precursor to that time. We're not there yet, but because we're living with these signs around us, we know that we're fast approaching the end, literal end time as we know it. And then he begins to list those things, and we looked at these this morning, which we'll not uh, go over again tonight. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, lovers of money, boasters, which means those who swagger about and brag and boast. Proud means haughty, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, which in the King James puts it better, without natural affection the dismantling and the decimation of families where that natural affection is so readily and easily expressed and must be expressed that that is fast approaching a time of great trouble. So we will continue uh, for a few moments tonight and finish this uh, list that Paul has written for us. And in verse 3 he talks about unforgiving. And again, the authorized version uh, puts it as truce breakers. Truce breakers. In the 20th and 21st century, countless truces have been made and broken. And particularly in the Middle East alone, between Israel and the surrounding Arab nations, and particularly with the Palestinians, uh, again, we have lost count of the many pacts and treaties and the roadmaps to peace 
and the Oslo Accord and on and on you could go. So many of them. And sometimes they lasted for months, sometimes for weeks, sometimes literally just for days. And then they weren't worth the paper they were written on. And, and it showed you the, uh, the, the leaders shaking hands at, in the White House lawn or at Camp David or in Israel and Jerusalem and, and the whole world said, look at that, now we've got peace in the Middle East. And it didn't last. Sometimes in days it was over. Hitler was a liar and a truce breaker. 30 September 1938, the then British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, he went to Munich for a conference with Italy and France and Germany and Britain to decide the future of a part of Czechoslovakia, Sudetenland, uh, which the Germans felt historically belonged to them, and Hitler wanted it back. And even before the war began, he had an expansionist vision. Uh, but in that conference, Hitler signed a treaty, a pact with Britain, and said that never again would he want Germany to go with war with the United Kingdom. And some of you maybe are old enough to remember, you've seen it in the old newsreels where Chamberlain came back with that piece of paper in his hand, waving it as he got off the plane, shouting, peace in our time, peace in our time. Winston Churchill, who was to take over from him, already had been warning about Hitler long before Chamberlain ever went. And one year later, 1st of September, 1939, Hitler invaded Poland. And that was the beginning of the, the war for us. Hitler invaded Poland and he declared that the agreement with Britain was just a scrap of paper. It didn't mean a thing. It didn't mean a thing in the first place. It was just buying time for him to get ready to invade nations. Every agreement that Israel has ever made with Hamas in Gaza with the Palestinian Authority and the West Bank, every agreement has been broken, not by Israel, but by Hamas and the PA. Every agreement. Even when they gave them land for peace, it never was enough. Because they don't want land for peace, they want the land at any cost. They don't want one single Jew to live in Israel. If they had their way, they would slaughter every one of them. And even in their constitution, it's part of it that they want Israel to be wiped of the map. <coughs> Again, this is paving the way for the Antichrist, who will be the greatest truce breaker of all time, who will make a pact with Israel, a peace treaty. And the world will rejoice because up until then, nobody has ever been able to accomplish this. So many presidents, so many prime ministers. Tony Blair was swanning about for years in the Middle East thinking he was going to conquer, <laughs> he was going to bring peace. He was living in it with an illusion. None of them has ever been able to do it and can't do it and won't do it. Though when the Antichrist comes, he will do it. And the world will rejoice. Peace at last in the Middle East. But it won't last. Because in the middle of the seven-year pact that he makes, he will break it. And all hell will be let loose against Israel. Just as he had planned in the first place. That agreement, by the way, and that breaking of that, you'll find at the end of Daniel chapter 9. I haven't time to go into all that tonight. And then in verse 3, Paul talks about the last days, slanders. Again, the King James puts it as false accusers, diablos. Diablos is the Greek name for the devil. Slanderer, adversary. In Paul's day, Nero was the great slanderer, an adversary. 
It is said, historians have said, that it was Nero who set fire to Rome. He wanted to destroy Rome as it was because he had his own vision of how it should be built with his own architecture. And so he set fire to it, which wouldn't make the citizens very happy. So what did he do? He blamed the Christians. And that precipitated a terrible, awful period for Christians, particularly in Rome, persecuted unto death. And it was said that Nero was so brutal and cold and callous that he even used Christians and impaled them in stakes in his garden, covered them with tar, and set them on fire as torches for his parties in the evening. And so here was the great slander. Again, Hitler, to come into power. The Jews was his scapegoat. And boy, did he slander them. And they had a great propaganda machine and caricatured them and ridiculed them and blamed them for everything, every ill in Germany. It was the Jews who did it. And in fact, around the world today, if you listen to the Arab nations, every problem in the world today is the Jews. How come one-tenth of one percent of the population, because that's all the Jews represent around the world, how come they're the cause of all the problems in the world, according to the Arabs? It's a nonsense. But so many believe that, particularly in the United Nations. Let me just read to you something here. Just bear with me uh, just for a moment. Uh, a writer called Wallace Henley, uh, who was part of the Richard Nixon uh, political machine at that time in Washington, uh, and became a great correspondent, a great newspaper correspondent, and laterally has become a pastor of a Baptist church in America. And he talks about this Civitas report that was entitled Christianophobia. And it highlights a fear among oppressive regimes that Christianity is a Western creed which can be used to undermine them, according to a report in the London Telegraph. In fact, there's a growing movement to stifle free speech and expression reveals Western culture would like to get rid of the pesky voice of biblical Christianity altogether. Some nations suppress Christians, their beliefs and message violently. Current Western culture, however, has its own style of trying to silence the real church. And it follows a specific sequence, sequence which has accelerated in recent years. And here's the sequence. The chain moves from characterization to marginalization, to vilification, to villainization, to criminalization. And then he explains that. Let me do it very quickly. One of the easiest ways to discredit someone, an institution or a movement or an idea, is to caricature it, making the subject look comical or grotesque. Whenever Gary and I was in Yad Vashem and the uh, the Holocaust Museum in Israel just in January, and they were showing us around. There's one particular section that showed you the propaganda machine the Nazis had against the Jews. And it was so very true how they made them out to be grotesque and monstrous. And, and this blood liable thing where they said that Christians actually took the blood of Jews to drink it at their communion services. And people actually believed that. In fact, they're still peddling that lie today in Arab nations, and people are believing it. So they caricature. They make them with great, big, grotesque noses, make them into monsters and big spiders and everything that they can think of. And of course, when that is perpetuated for, for years, people begin to believe the caricature. And so he says the other type of caricaturization comes from spite and anger and hatred. Uh, like what I'm talking about. And the aim of this is to make the subject appear clownish or a bumbling buffoon or should not be taken seriously or a sinister monster. An interesting PhD dissertation topic relating to the history of cinema 
might be the shift in filmmaking as the usual depiction of the church and clergy as noble people out to serve others to now a cliched and formulaic Bible-thumping hypocritical fills who only want to exploit people. And that's what we see. So that which is caricatured to the public mind as unserious and irrelevant can be easily marginalized. He said, I witnessed the launch of the age of marginalization as a reporter for a large daily newspaper in the 1960s. The anti-establishment who became the present establishment pontificated widely on the unimportance of biblical Christianity. And from that beginning, marginalization went on to become public policy as the church was sequestered behind a bigger and bigger wall of separation that fenced out the wrong culprit, which was the church, a regime that might want to create its own religious establishment or on those whose godless policies would cause it to throttle the church. Then he says, vilification easily follows from marginalization. To vilify is to defame and slander. The goal is to shrink respect for the person, the movement, the institution, institution or an idea being vilified. Marginalization says the person or the movement, the institution or the, institution or the idea deserves only a minimal and peripheral role in, in the culture. But vilification suggests there should be no role at all for the vilified subject. It is nothing to contribute to the great societal conversation. And that's what's happening today. These atheists are saying that Christianity has nothing to give us. Nothing. Evolution is the key to life. Not Christianity, not the Bible, not God. So we see that today. And so now the danger mounts and the possibility of persecution looms. What has been merely caricatured and marginalized and vilified is now villainized become villains. That pesky person or movement or institution or idea is no longer to be scorned merely but feared. It is the bad boy in the cultural street ready to trip or assault the noble civilization builders and freedom defenders who gallantly march by. And then it goes on, after villainization comes criminalization. New laws are written redefining marriage are infringing on the freedom of conscience and practice with the villainous class, and suddenly there's a smoking gun. Lawsuits stir in the minds of the protectors of the cultural consensus. The Chick-fil-A here, a Hobby Lobby there. Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby are two major organizations in America. One sells food and the other sells toys and hobbies and so forth. And because they stood up against this, and stood up for godliness and all the rest of it. They were vilified and, and criminalized, actually. And then he goes on to say, Chick-fil-A here, Hobby Lobby there, Hobby Lobby, a pastor refusing to perform a same-sex wedding, a Christian baker refusing to bake for a marriage ceremony not in accord with his faith. We've seen that here in Northern Ireland. Christian and BB keepers who want to accommodate homosexual couples. Elimination logically follows from criminalization. The offenders must be removed for the greater good. In some parts of the world, elimination is of the blatant style. Hang them, gas them, behead them, anything, just eliminate them. But in civilized America, because that's where he comes from, elimination takes a different form. Fire corporate leaders who have gone against political correctness in the establishment. Dismiss them from the boards. Lynch them in the media. Anything short of literal blood, just get them out of the way. The church needs to be ready. She must also rest in the hope, like the early church in Rome, that she is prepared in the catacombs for a greater ministry in the public square. And so you can see the sequence that's happening. And that sequence is happening right now in Northern Ireland with the Asher Bakery. And Pastor James McConnell being taken to court for saying something about Islam. It's happening before our eyes today. The very things that Paul talked about. And so then he says in verse 3, those will be without self-control. King James puts it better. It says, incontinent. Now we know that if someone is incontinent, it means they have no control over some bodily function. They can't control it. 
But this means without power over one's passions. Anything goes. No restraints, no shame, no remorse, no embarrassment, no sense of decency, sin abounding. That's what it means. And that's exactly where we are today. Things that we would have blushed about 20 years ago, we no longer blush. We're desensitized. And unfortunately, the church no longer blushes either. Television, movies, media has such a power over us. That's why we have to be careful what we see and what we watch and what we hear and what we listen. And so again, this is paving the way for the Antichrist who will be called the lawless one, the man of sin. Where under his reign, anything goes and everything goes. I find it interesting that the nations today, like Sweden and others, and Holland, who has given in to the spirit of the age, and where practically anything goes, we find their culture is imploding. They're destroying themselves from the inside. And all the talk about marijuana and drug, drugs and, and let's Amsterdam, let's set up these places where people can have it free and they can go and they can sit and over. And Britain wanted to copy that, not realizing that it was a major, major problem for Amsterdam. So they abandoned the idea. And so lawless, lawlessness will abound. Have all betide anyone who calls it sin or disagrees with any alternative lifestyle. And that puts the Christians on the front line, does it not? Because once we put our head above the parapet, <laughs> we're going to get shot at, that's for sure. And that's the way things are today. And so they say, let's release yourself from this Judeo-Christian ethic. Let's have our own set of morals. You have your morals, I have my morals, and yours is yours and mine's mine. Don't you judge me, I'll not judge you. And so everyone says, let's have our own morals. But to have any morals, there must be a moral lawgiver. Otherwise, it's just a thought in our head, isn't it? It doesn't mean a thing. Unless there's a rule. Unless there's a gauge. Unless there is a moral lawgiver who's God. But if society is just to decide what's moral and what isn't, then we're heading for big trouble, aren't we? So what do we see now? A cry for the liberalization of laws that affect everyone. On abortion, gay marriage, lowering the age of consent. I'm old enough to remember the times when it's been lowered and lowered and lowered. And right now there are people who want it even lower. And so you can see how that would make it easy for pedophilia to be accepted if the age limit goes lower and lower than it already is. And that's exactly what they want. And so Paul said about without self-control, and then he says brutal, fierce, untamed, savage, wild. Is that not what we're seeing today? Time magazine estimates there are at least 140 terrorist groups around the world. At least 140. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Boko Haram. You Filipinos are familiar with Abu Saif in Mindanao. Muslim terrorists there. And on and on you go around the world. And the brutality is just almost beyond imagination. ISIS cannot think of enough ways to execute people. <coughs> they must be sitting in a huddle dreaming up what they'll do next to shock people. And Scotland still doesn't shock anymore. It's unbelievable. 
We have countries who encourage it. They arm guerrilla groups. They pay for them. Major countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia. Of course, they'll deny it. But the fact is they do it. And everybody knows they do it. We have weapons of mass destruction, chemical warfare. We have enough nuclear bombs today stored up that would blow this planet to smithereens. So even if they reduced them just a little bit, it would make no difference. And the big fear today is, what if some rogue state, what if Iran really does build a nuclear bomb? Don't you think that's Israel's biggest concern right now? But Israel has said, we won't allow it. We will stop it. And he did it before. <laughs> because he said they would use it to destroy us, and they would. There's no question about that. They would use it. You say, well, they'll be mad because somebody's going to attack them. They don't care. It's an ideology. They don't care. And so this is the world we're living in today. Despisers of those who are good. Now you say, sure, that's been around for a long time. Well, it's, it's been from the Garden of Eden, isn't it? It's been from the days whenever Cain slew his brother Abel. Despisers of those who are good. Christ himself was despised even though he did nothing else but good. He was perfect. And they crucified him. They hated him, particularly the religious group. The church down through the ages has always been castigated even when they were doing their best to do good to others. And Paul understood this probably more than others. So he's looking down this prophetic corridor of time. He sees what's going to be happening. And he sees the day coming when doing good for Christ's sake will be increasingly scorned and ridiculed and attacked and rejected. And boy, if we're not living in the cusp of that, I don't know where we are. But listen, this is more than just despising those who do good. This is despising those who are good. Despisers of those who are good. Just by being good. Just by being a follower of Christ. That's enough. It's all that it takes. How many people today are being slaughtered in the Middle East simply because they name the name of Jesus? They may not be a follower like you and I. They may not be born again. But because they say, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they're getting slaughtered for it. Wholesale. And so this is more than just doing good. This is being good. It's being light. It's being salt. And that will be enough to cause people to despise us. But <laughs> Jesus has a great word of encouragement for those days. Listen to what he said in Matthew 5 in his great Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. So even when that happens, even if it's somebody in your workplace for no other reason than you're a believer, you've never done them any harm, you've never spoken ill of them, you've never had an argument with them, but for something, when you walk into the room, their hackles rise, they don't even know why. They don't even understand why. Jesus said, rejoice, be exceedingly glad. <laughs> you're doing something right, you're being right, and that's enough for somebody to turn against you. 
Then he talked about traitors. Traitors. In the Old Testament, David had a traitor. His name was Ahithophel. My own familiar friend has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus had his Judas. Tread him with a kiss. Treachery and traitors be one of the hallmarks in these last days. Communism always has had traitors to work for them. Whether it's Chinese communism, whether it's Russian communism, whether it's North Korean communism, there's nothing better for them than to get somebody who for a price or even for a cause will betray their own country. Not just an individual, but a whole nation. For years, there was three men called Guy Burgess, Donald McLean, and Kim Philby. And those three men were entrusted. The American and British intelligence trusted these men, took them into their confidence, not knowing that for years they were traitors to their nation and selling and giving their secrets to Russia. That was why Russia was able to build a nuclear bomb, because of these traitors. North Korea encourages everyone to spy on everyone. <laughs> the whole country spies on each other, and particularly family members. And if a family member says anything against the dear leader, <laughs> Kim Il-sung, because that's what he wants to be called, the dear leader, and then they're either killed or they're sent to the salt mines or somewhere. Betrayed even by their own kin. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus even talks about this in Luke 21. When he's talking about end times, Let me just find the exact verse. Well, let me read it from verse 7. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be, and what sign will there be that these things are about to take place? And Jesus said, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many will come in my name and say, I am he. And the time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. And he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. There will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But will turn out but it will turn out for you for an occasion for testimony. Therefore settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Note this. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated of all men for my name's sake but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your, by your patience, possess your souls. So even Jesus talked about this in the days that we live in, in the days that are coming. This is a pretty chilling account, isn't it? This is not make you feel good time. People didn't turn up tonight because they wanted something to make them feel good. Don't want to hear this because it's negative. That's scary. But it's reality. And it's Bible. And if Jesus talked about it and Paul talked about it, we better listen. And then he talked about those who would be headstrong, rash, reckless, that means. Society will be reckless, rash, not caring about consequences or outcomes. Laws are hurriedly rushed through Parliament. 
Let's push this through at all costs. It doesn't matter what the outcome is. Let's do it. So new statutes and ordinances must be implemented immediately, regardless of the rights of others. Did you ever live to think you would see the day when some of the laws that have been passed in the mother of parliaments? Did you ever think you'd live to see the day that that would happen? But it's happening. Hundreds of years of good law that served the nation well for centuries is swept aside by the stroke of a pen. And we're suffering because of it. <coughs> Headstrong, rash. When people get in positions of power, then they want to do what they want to do. Haughty means high-minded. High-minded. There's a lot of high-mindedness going around. A lot of people exalting themselves against the very knowledge of God, as the Bible talks about. Because of time, I haven't time to read it all. Second Corinthians chapter 10. You'll see there what Paul talked about. What high-mindedness does. People with these great ideas. People who think they're smarter than God himself. And yet they're foolish. Their wisdom is foolishness with God. We've never had a smarter generation and a more foolish generation than the one we're living in. Men with incredible minds. <laughs> Men who can put people, who can put crafts in space. I was reading about one there, just watching it on TV. It's crashed into a comet or something. Six billion miles to get to a comet that's traveling at thousands of miles an hour. And they're able to get to it and they're able to land it on it. Incredible minds. And yet, Paul says in Romans 1, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They will not acknowledge God because they think they're smarter and they're clever and they're scientists and they're bright. They don't need some old grandfather in the sky, as I like to say. No, no, they've got the smarts. And they suppress the truth and righteousness. God says they're foolish. And then lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now remember that when Paul wrote this, remember that Rome especially, that the Romans in general were the most pleasure-loving people on planet Earth. They loved their pleasures. And the Caesars said, give the people bread and circuses. The circus is not a circus as we think of a circus. It meant the chariot races and the Colosseum and, and all of that. And it was bloodthirsty entertainment, by the way, for the most part. But they loved it. They would come 50,000 at a time. Have you ever been in the Colosseum? Have you ever seen that place? And you stand there and you look at it. The, the sheer scale of it and you think what must have went on and, and you see down below where they, where they had the wild animals the little alleyways down below where they brought the wild animals up into the I mean it's magnificently built I mean engineering in those days was incredible and it was all for one thing for pleasure no matter how bloodthirsty they reckon there was at least a million animals and people killed in the Colosseum alone for what? for entertainment for pleasure They had public baths. They had the equivalent of saunas. They had the races, the gladiatorial fights. Rome was the Las Vegas of its day. It was the sin city of its day. And everything had free course. Paul talks about those who love pleasure more than they love God. Today, leisure and pleasure is a massive worldwide industry. Pornography is a billion-dollar industry. And it shows no sign of slowing up. I could say more about that, but I won't. There are more cruise ships sailing the seven seas today than there's ever been. We are addicted to leisure and pleasure. 
And I know what the sad part about it is. The church has bought into it. There's nothing wrong with some leisure and some pleasure. But if you buy into it too much, and a lot of the church has, then church will not be a commitment to you, it will be a convenience to you. If there's nothing else better on, I'll go out to church. And the church has bought it as consumerism. Consumerism. And it's come into the church and it's hurt the church. Church in the West I'm talking about. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. We all love a holiday. We all love a meal out. If you can get a cruise, it's lovely. Go on one if you can. That's fine. I'm not against any of those things. But if that mentality of pleasure seeps into the believer too much, let me tell you, you can guarantee that your love for God will begin to dissipate and church will become an afterthought. How do you know? I've seen it over the years so many times. And then the last one. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. I'm going to read something to you in a minute that's going to shock you. Well, it might shock some of you, but it might not shock the rest of you. Form here means outward resemblance. Having an outward resemblance of godliness, but denying its dominus, its inherent power that's in the gospel. There is an inherent power within the gospel message to change lives. We might call it religiosity or churchianity. Today, sadly, we have some ministers who are atheists. Did you see in the paper the other week? I mean, it really is ridiculous. A lady minister in Canada declared herself an atheist. And the Methodist Church in Canada, it's not like the Methodist Church here, by the way, the Methodist Church in Canada is debating the subject. It shouldn't be up for debate. She should be kicked out immediately. Forthwith, get out. And so there's atheists behind pulpits, there's agnostics, there's compromisers, there's modernists, there's liberals who no longer believe the Bible is the Word of God, that it should be changed to suit the current culture. No longer believe in the virgin birth, no longer believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, no longer believe in Adam and Eve as a literal person, no, no longer believe any of that. No longer believe in the Genesis account of creation. Nonsense, they say. A metaphor. But not real, not literal. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Deception is exceedingly high. Forces are at work to bring about a one-world church where one size fits all. Let me read this to you. This is a revelation from Pope Francis, current Pope. His name, Man of the Year by Time magazine. Listen to what he says. Through humility, soul-searching, and prayerful contemplation, we have gained a new understanding of certain dogmas. The church no longer believes in a literal hell where people suffer. That this doctrine is incompatible with the infinite love of God. God is not a judge, but a friend and a lover of humanity. God seeks not to condemn, but only to embrace. Like the fable of Adam and Eve, we see hell as a literary device. Hell is merely a metaphor for the isolated soul, which, like all souls, ultimately will be united in love with God. I don't know what Bible he reads. Certainly not my Bible. 
In a shocking speech that is reverberating across the world, Pope Francis declared that all religions are true because they are true in the hearts of all those who believe in them. So in other words, as long as you sincerely believe it, it doesn't matter what it is, it's be true because you believe it. What other kind of truth is there, he asks. In the past, the church has been harsh on those that deem morally wrong or sinful. Today, we no longer judge. Like a loving father, we never condemn our children. Our church is big enough for heterosexuals, for homosexuals, for the pro-life, for the pro-choice, for conservatives and liberals. Even communists are welcome and have joined us. We all love and worship the same God. Complete and utter nonsense. The last six months, Catholic cardinals, bishops, and theologians have been deliberating in the Vatican City and discussing the future of the church, redefining the long-held Catholic doctrines and dogmas. Let me tell you, the last two popes wouldn't have issued that. They definitely wouldn't have issued this. Pope Francis, Pope Francis convened the new council to finally finish the work of the Second Vatican Council. The Third Vatican Council concluded with Pope Francis announcing that Catholicism is now a modern and reasonable religion which has undergone evolutionary changes. The time has come to abandon all intolerance. We must recognize that religious truth evolves and changes. Truth is not absolute or set in stone. Well, excuse me, I, I thought the Ten Commandments were set in stone. Am I missing something here? Even atheists acknowledge the divine. Really? Through acts of love and charity, the atheist, atheist acknowledges God as well and redeems his own soul. They become an active participant in the redemption of humanity. One statement in the Pope's speech has sent traditionalists into a fit of confusion and hysteria. I bet it did. God is changing and evolving as we are. What? Excuse me, let me read it again. God is changing and evolving as we are, for God lives in us and in our hearts. And when we spread love and kindness in the world, we touch our own divinity and recognize it. The Bible is a beautiful holy book, but like all great and ancient works, some passages are outdated. Some even call for intolerance or judgment. The time has come to see these verses as later interpolations, contrary to the message of love and truth, which otherwise radiates throughout Scripture. In accordance with our new understanding, we will begin to ordain women as cardinals, bishops, and priests. In the future, it is my hope that we will have a woman pope one day. Let no door be closed to woman that is open to all men. It's not shocking. And it's not just the Pope and the Catholic Church that's struggling with this stuff. The Protestant Church is struggling with this too. Why? Because they do not believe the Bible is the final authority, that it is the infallible, unerring Word of God, cannot be changed. And as long as you don't believe that, you can change anything about it you don't like. And that's why this says a different culture, it's a different age, so we can change it. No, you can't. God's inerrant, infallible, unchanging scripture cannot be changed by anyone. Paul said, from such people, turn away. Let me tell you, a line is being drawn in the sand. It really is. And we'll either be on one side of it or the other side of it. But we can't sit in the fence. Cannot sit in the fence. So how should we live in closing? How should we live in the light of all of this? Paul, writing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, remember I said this morning, this is his first epistle, even though chronologically in the Bible it isn't, but it is. First one he wrote. And he writes about last things first. And he talks in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, since you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Thank God for the rapture. I know there's lots. I have some dear pastor friends who do not believe it and say, well, God bless you, I do. 
I'm not going to argue with you, but I believe it for sure. Then he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. See, we're talking about the end times, the last days. And in spite of the blackness of it and the fierceness of it and the difficulty of it, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. The Lord is coming again. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the great resurrection chapter, in verse 50, he says, Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And the word is atomos, from where we got him from. <coughs> in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this in closing. Therefore, my beloved brethren... He's speaking about the last time. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So whenever you preach about the end times, that's not a time to close your Bible and fold up and wait for the rapture and say, I'm finished, I'm done, I'm over. No, it's a time to double up. It's a time to be up and doing. It's a time for the church to be busy. If we truly believe these are the last days, then the door is going to close. And we need to get many, as many in through that door before it closes as possible, particularly, as I said this morning, our loved ones, because this door is not going to stay open forever. The age of grace will close. But thank God that Christ is coming, and he is coming soon. And he's coming for those who love him and those who serve him. Glory to God. And those who look for him, the Bible says, are we looking for him, for his coming? Glory to God. Lord, we thank you that you will indeed keep your promise. You said that you are going away, that you would make a home for us, that you would build a mansion for us, and that you would return and receive us unto yourself that where you are, we may be also. So thank you, Lord, that you will keep your word. Amen. You said that you're coming quickly. And we believe that. And so we give you thanks for your precious word that is unfailing. Lord, we believe it completely and totally. We thank you, Lord, it's not outdated or outmoded. It's as relevant, it's as up to date as tomorrow morning's newspaper and beyond it. So we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.